What you want more than anything is you want to meet people with different experiences. And I've always sort of found you would see things that you would not automatically have come across. Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. I'm Scott Challoner, and in each episode, I'm joined by a director, a CEO, a CFO, a government minister, a chairman, a president, and who knows, maybe one day even the prime minister once he's out of the hospital and recovers from his COVID-19 symptoms. The aim here is to discover who these people are, the people who get up each morning and make this country work. We discuss everything from outsmarting the competition to crisis decisions, and of course, the innovation and success that make it all worthwhile in the end. We also get their take on the current economic and political landscape here in the UK. I'm delighted today to be joined by Michael Linsky, the Managing Director of Senzio Lighting, a family-run business in Castleford, Yorkshire, which provides LED lighting for kitchens, bathrooms and bedrooms. A business initially run from a garage back in 2007, Senzio has rapidly grown into a business with an average annual growth rate of 15%. So without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, I present Michael Linsky. Michael, welcome to the programme. Great to have you uh, with us today and many thanks for uh, coming in. Hi, Scott. Thanks for your time. It's uh, wonderful to have you. Now, Michael, you're, of course, a company up in Yorkshire with over 40 employees. Tell me, with everything going on with COVID-19 at the moment, how has it been for you trying to navigate the last few weeks? Because I can imagine that it has had a real impact. What a great question to start with. Um, First of all, I think this is a very challenging time, which is something that we haven't gone through before. We navigated the 2008 recession, which changed how we work and how we added value to the customers. But this time round, it's a completely different game changer. I think it's changed because we have never been in a position before where within a couple of weeks, we've lost around 98% of our top line. So it all comes down to cash flow and liquidity as number one. So it has been difficult. There's, we've had to make difficult, hard decisions quickly because I think time has been completely against us. And the number one starting position for herself was cash flow and liquidity. What do you do when your top line stops? And how do you manage cash flow down the supply chain? How do you manage the cash coming from the customers? And how do you in, how do you manage and help employees? Um, so there's been a few things that we've had to juggle really quickly. And I suppose we've tried to take a very simple, pragmatic, logical, step-by-step solution without putting too much emotion in it. And it's really started with identifying and prioritizing our resources and our time to the biggest challenges first. Like I said, number one challenge for us was liquidity. Um, what do we do with our cash flows? How do we manage it? And then really focusing on government policy of understanding what's going to happen. Do we get locked down? Can we continue to work? When will the markets come back? So it's led to a real broad mix of questions, which we've had to try to create what is scenarios to understand what to do. So number one uh, challenge, get straight into the cash flow. Number two, we've had to develop a range of scenarios of trying to work out how long we would be in lockdown, what we could do with our working capital, how to raise 
more capital to create liquidity and then trying to plan in different what-if scenarios of when will we be able to open fully, what will the markets look like, how much will they contract, um, who will still be in the market, what will the strength of the customer base be like. So a lot of planning around what-if scenarios, trying to get an understanding of, of where risk sits, and then getting into doing stress tests on our financials. So back to cash flow again, how much capital could we raise? Um, do we have to cut back operating structure by how much and how quick? Can we support all our people through this so we don't have to lose anyone? Um, and then effectively trying to create a large amount, uh, large amount of data around a, a dashboard to make decisions with data. For sure, and there's been um, there's been a great deal of uncertainty um, for a business at this time, and uh, we've seen the government step in, providing updates on coronavirus. And during these briefings in the past, they've been announcing measures to help safeguard business, but at the same time, these measures are fundamentally preventing businesses from performing their functions. Um, do you think, Michael, that the government is doing the right things at present, and have you perhaps been encouraged at all by what the government is doing? It's difficult to say because I wouldn't want to be in their shoes. Um, not, no one's gone through this before. So just as we're having to make really tough decisions quickly, they're having to do the same. Everybody's adjusting weekly on the data that's coming out. But the, the longer we spend in this lockdown period, the more damage it's going to have on markets and the economy. So I think it's a real interesting balance. They've got to balance lives and they've got to balance the economy. And life's by far more important, for sure. But we've got to have an economy to go back to. And if we look at recession modeling, the the best case scenario was creating a V-shaped recession. So we wouldn't lose any of the market in the downturn. I think we're moving away from this V-shape now to a U-shape, like 2008, where we're going to have a loss of part of the market for a period of time. Um, but I think the government, doing a relatively decent job. The schemes are very big, they're big and impactful. What I think is becoming more difficult is it's one thing having a strategy and a plan, the other thing is executing it. Mm. So I think it's now down to the banks at the speed they can execute the cash and the schemes. I do think the scheme for uh, retention of workers is very good because we've had to put the majority of our staff onto the retention scheme, so at least we can continue to pay wages. But it's now how fast can we actually access capital through the loan schemes by the government? Absolutely. And has accessing government help perhaps been as convenient as it should be? Because um, a lot of businesses have had some issues with the uh, coronavirus business interruption loan scheme. Um, how has that been for yourselves? Um, it's been a bit of a challenge. And it's not because people don't want to help. People really do. But I think the banks have been put under enormous pressure in a very short period of time where they're having to change a lot of their systems and there's a big flux of demand and they don't have the resources to process all these applications. But it's not so straightforward and we have two different businesses going for two different types of loans, one uh, just under a quarter of a million and one for much more. And the banks are adapting and changing to changes that government are making. And each week they're trying to adapt their policies and process to fit what the government's an announced. 
So I think considering we've never all been through this, yeah, it, it's good on everyone's side. But I, I don't think it's the most simplest process. And because the SME sector um, is not all run on data, it, it's run on uh, lifestyle businesses and people with a lot of gut feel and a lot of emotion, I think it's going to be quite hard for a proportion of this SME sector to raise capital quickly because you have to identify how much cash you need, when you need it, how long it lasts. Because at the end of the day, this is only a loan. You've got to pay this back. Mm. After the first year of interest kicks in. So just getting a loan isn't really the goal. It's to get a loan and have a business model that's viable after this period of time to pay the loan off because there's two parts to it. Absolutely. Today's focus is very much on cash flow, but the focus of tomorrow will be a completely different requirement, and that's being able to excel in a recession and pay those loans off, isn't it? Completely agree. But what's really interesting is what's going to change. So the markets before this happened, we knew and we understood because it's a status quo. What happens after this will change routines, habits, patterns, dilute markets. There's more opportunity coming out of this because actually there's going to be a new way of how we have to adapt. So I really believe that um, after this, the game is going to change. If you just look at how employees have worked, businesses have been forced to set up working from home. If it wasn't for the coronavirus, all the businesses and how we've been set up to work from home wouldn't have been in place because that's not something that was common in industry. It was more uh, the, the high-tech software side, which could be flexible and freelance and work from home. But I think it's changing how we do things. I think the employees are going to have a challenge about how we manage uh, work from home and changes in technology to have a more fluent structure. But also, I think we're going to have challenges in understanding how markets are going to change after the coronavirus. I can certainly see where you're coming from, uh, Michael, because it is um, going to be a game changer, this, and the markets are not going to be the same in terms of their landscape as they were when we did come into this. And business is going to have to be reactive and be able to adapt to that, absolutely. Um, as well as this, um, I did actually come across an article in the uh, the Sunday Telegraph um, the weekend just gone, and it showed a real sharp rise in the number of liquidations um, in the UK um, over March compared to February. And there are some legal experts out there now who are backing changes to the insolvency laws to try to help guide businesses through this lockdown period. Um, the proposals themselves are being headed up by Mark Phillips, and the idea would be to create a Chapter 11 style bankruptcy protection regime. So administrators would consent for the management of a firm to continue to run the business, during which time the existing admin framework would protect the business from being wound up and stop creditors from making claims against its assets. Um, is that the right kind of move that businesses ought to really get behind, do you think? I think it's really important because the difference here is markets have stopped. So our sector has just closed. So all our top line has gone. It doesn't mean that we weren't a profitable business. It just means that you have a completely different dynamics in cash flow and working capital. So actually, I think as a victim from this, you're going to get a lot of very good businesses that were profitable going bust because we've run out of cash flow. And because we've not been in these times before, it's not probably that the bank and the government wouldn't lend them money. It's it just didn't happen quick enough. So everybody's in a better position to find a way of working through 
so that these businesses can pay off the debt and can employ more people afterwards and give them a bit of breathing space to do that. Because at the end of the day, this is just coming down to, to cash and how it's worked with the businesses. People have probably not built up a good enough amount of liquidity and capital to create this type of buffer uh, because it's unprecedented before. So I think businesses will view working capital and cash differently, just like what banks had to do in the 2008 recession. For certain, and um, it's posing a very different challenge um, than 2008, isn't it? It's very much uncharted territory, all of this, for both the banks and for business. It is, um, but with all chaos comes a massive amount of opportunity. So it will dilute markets, weaker players will go out, it will mean there's more market share out there, but it will also create new markets and new opportunities that didn't exist because of the disruption of routine. So wherever you have a lot of negativity and big impact of change you also have a massive amount of positivity and if you can be creative you can find a way of coming out on top um in the recession in 2008 companies did very well and companies grew so here's an opportunity it's not all doom and gloom it is going to change what we do it's just the people which are resilient enough to understand that what we did yesterday is just not what we got to do tomorrow Exactly right. Um, there are opportunities out there for business and it's important that business is creative and is innovative during this time to make sure that it is in the best position to hit the ground running after this and really seize those opportunities that will be there as you've just outlined. Um, Michael, um, looking back at the um, parliamentary review article that the business originally wrote, um, it's been of course some months since uh, that was published and I know in that piece you talked about how Senzio Lighting has was going about future-proofing itself from market disruption and a great deal of investment from the business had gone into research and development. So for the benefit of the listeners, can you tell me a little bit more about what you've been doing in that sense and also maybe how that's been impacted by this outbreak as well? I truly believe that businesses have to invest in innovation. I think it's important because innovation creates differentiation and you've got to be different and unique or you just commoditized on price. And in 2008, the markets moved to price positioning um, because at the time, there's less money to be spent on innovation and new products and higher price points. So I think innovation protects for the future. Um, it also allows you to disrupt markets. So innovation today, what I don't want to do just because of this period of time and this challenge is I don't want us to lose sight of what's important to the business. Mm. So while people will be cutting back, I want to continue to spend and continue as much as possible on investing in the future because uh, the future is for certain. It's going to happen and we want to be part of that, but we don't want to be commoditized. And I think what's going to come from this is we now have to find a way of adding more value to more people. I think just selling the same as everyone else and being commoditized coming out of this is just not a good position because it can all be played on a price game. So innovation and change is, is, is the number one most important thing to us. And I don't want to pull back expenditure on innovation in these times. It would have been, you know, it would be one of the last things that we want to pull back on. Mm. Um, but it's going to be more challenging now because people will be more cautious where they put the money. Um, you're going to have to make a case of, of why people should spend their money with you. And you're going to have to 
be very good at being able to identify and tell the customers why they want to come to you and the additional value you can create through innovation. Absolutely right. And um, also you mentioned the importance of being a disruptive influencer in the market as well and investing in the future. It's going to be hugely important for that as well, isn't it? To seize on that freeing up of market capital that we've discussed already. Yeah, I think there's two sides. You can innovate to create better propositions. The other side of it, I think, is an investment to innovate in a more productive operational structure. Because in this point of time now, People will start to look at their break-even points and their cost of operations, and everybody wants to create more efficiency and more productivity um, for the money because they're going to have to. So people will start looking at cost structures now, and I'm very happy that in the past few years we've been investing a lot of money in automation. The other thing that that investment's allowed us to do is work with live data. So when we've been pulling together these what-if scenarios and planning for the capital requirements, we've been able to work in systems that can do a lot of calculations in a very accurate manner quickly, which doesn't require a lot of heads. Absolutely. It's this proactivity which can really help businesses be reactive when they have to be, isn't it? Having contingency plans in place, having measures there, and then being able to not necessarily roll with the punches, but be able to make decisions and react based upon changing guidelines and changing circumstances. It's so, so crucial, isn't it? It's all about data. The more data you can access quicker, the better decisions can be made. And if that data dashboard is all driven through automation, it means when you're planning for a different scenario or if the government say next week something else is changing, we can change all our data to, to model it. So I, I believe it's important. But as we're starting to get through this period, and we're, we're going to come out of the side at some point, I think the, the next thing for businesses to start thinking about is how to protect their employees, how to reinsure the customers, how to restore supply chains, and how to reinvest and revise business models to catch more market share. I mm, can certainly see where you're coming from, uh, Michael. Um, one thing I want to talk about as well as, of course, automation and innovation is uh, communication as well, which again, um, this crisis has highlighted the importance of. Um, in your parliamentary review article, you discuss Sensio Lighting's company policy on communication. And as you say in the piece, everything is pretty much done face to face at the company. Um, how have recent events impacted that and how have you adapted that policy to be able to continue to run the business effectively? I think um, now more than ever, a caring culture is required because I think you've got a lot of fear. People fear for the jobs and fear, people fear for the health. So I think we have a responsibility to the people we employ to look after them in difficult times. So our goal through this is not to lose anybody. If we can, that's our, that's our number one goal. We've got to protect the employees. But we've got to keep communicating a lot. And okay, face-to-face communication is not so easy when you're locked down in your house and restricted on movement. But we are doing a lot of video conferencing. Um, we keep people updated via uh, platforms like WhatsApp. So we're having to be a little bit more creative in what we use versus what we did before. But I think what we've got to do is we've got to be, we've got to create a solid foundation to create some stability and certainty for those people. 
Exactly right. And you make a very interesting point there because this podcast, first and foremost, is all about leadership and really bringing that into focus. And this whole crisis has highlighted the importance for a leader, especially in business, of having people around them who are self-motivated, maintaining a culture of positivity, all aiming towards a common goal, not allowing sort of panic to manifest and also allowing people to sort of take on responsibilities themselves and maintain good communication, keep checks on what they're doing. It's so, so important for a business leader to be able to keep stock of all of that, isn't it, at this time? Difficult. Um, People have always been your biggest asset in business and the challenge is, is always to look after the people. But to give them enough space to allow them to think of new ideas um, and new ways of innovating without any fear of failure. And actually, in the past, I believe fear is the thing which has stopped creativity. In this time, you've got more fear surrounding you. So I think one of the biggest goals today is how do we continue to focus on a culture which allows people to, to work remotely with less measures, less face-to-face, but allow them to think a little bit outside the box to find new ways of adding value or efficiency or productivity rather than having to always, you know, if you employ, employ people and tell them what to do, it's not it's not right. You should employ people and let them tell you what to do. And I think that's where constructively as businesses, you can move better together than individuals. Now, one interesting point that you mentioned there, uh, Michael, of course, was this um, idea of fear. Um, Fear, essentially, of failure, fear of the worst happening as a result of this um, COVID-19 scenario. Um, If we sort of take this to mean sort of making mistakes um, for business leaders. I mean, I think it's almost a necessity, isn't it, to try things, maybe get things wrong and then learn from mistakes going through a business life. I mean, would you say that's important for somebody to be a good business leader, trying things, getting them wrong and then learning from those? completely agree. I think if, if you're not failing, you're not really trying hard enough and there's going to be a lack of there's going to be this fear of failure. But I also think because we're now working from home and we're not all together, there's going to be a sense of lack of direction from staff because all of a sudden they're in their own house, doing their own thing, working on it, not being checked and measured and monitored as much. Not that people have to be, but that's the general sense of the hierarchy. So I think we've got to just empower them to you know, do what they think is best for themselves and the business at the time um, and we've got to keep them motivated because, you know, it's, it's very hard um, trying to keep a team fired up and motivated when you're not together in the same sense as you were as what normal was before this happened. For certain, it can be a challenge, of course, um, keeping individuals motivated from a distance. But also on the flip side to that, we can see um, in times of crisis, people really bringing out the best in themselves as well, can't we? 100%, I think. <laughs> When things become difficult, you you need crisis. I think crisis is sometimes good because it pushes you. It pushes you and your team to really realise how good you are, and you learn in crisis. When everything's good all the time and markets are good, and it's you know smooth sailing, you don't really have to innovate what you do because it's complacency kicks in. But I think in crisis, it makes you go back to basics with a team of people. All trust each other, and as long as your outcome is all aligned, it, it works for everybody. 
it all comes back to that key word beginning with L, doesn't it? Learning, learning from mistakes and developing into a better um, business person, business leader because of it. Um, because fundamentally, yeah, here, Michael, um, business leaders, good business leaders especially, may be born with certain qualities such as self-motivation, such as hunger, such as desire, but they're not ready-made at birth for being business leaders or leaders in any walk of life, are they? It's very much a process of learning and developing. I think um, entrepreneurs generally all fear failure. I think that is one of the core drivers of motivation. Um, I certainly don't want to fail, but I also know that I've got to fail to succeed. So it's this very difficult catch-22 position where um, you have to fail to adapt and change and make things better. But the biggest key motivator for entrepreneurs is you just don't want to fail because everybody told you mm. through your life that you're going to fail. And you know there's so much doubt against that to create that culture without failure for sure. But push the boundaries and push them hard. Just try to balance that without going bust. For sure. And do you think that we should be telling the next generation of entrepreneurs and business leaders to embrace failure, not necessarily be afraid of failure, but to learn from it and use it to make them better and then make sure they don't fall into those traps in future? I think to do that, we've got to change what failing means. And I think that's the start of schools. And do you think that's something that's um, a matter of culture in this country? Because um, you look at it in um, government context, and of course, there's been a lot of support for government measures. But at the same time, in some quarters, there have been a lot of uh, criticisms as well. And in leadership positions, especially those in the public eye, people are there to be shot at, aren't they? And do you think that's an inherent problem with the culture in this country? 100% agree. It's easy to criticise when you don't have to make the decisions. And I think in hindsight, Everybody understands the scenario differently. So I think we've got to stop using that in what we do. And I think in business and school and everything we get brought up, we we all get told that, you know, failure is a bad thing. And if you fail, you're not going to get anywhere in life. And it's just not right. I can certainly see where you're coming from, uh, Michael. Um, I'm going to ask a bit more of an abstract question now, but um, if you could be in Boris Johnson's shoes for a day and become the Prime Minister of uh, the United Kingdom, what is the one big thing that you would try to change to help business? I think we need some certainty of when we're going to get the economies going again. Um, again, it's not criticism because none of us have been here before and it's a challenging time for everyone. I think there's got to be the loans have got to get to businesses quicker. And the processes at the moment, I think, with the banks, although the banks are doing the best they possibly can, from our perspective, with what we've been going through with them, it's got to be quicker because every week that goes by, there's going to be more injuries, more businesses, more unemployment. So get the liquidity into the market quicker for sure. Secondly, we need to understand when markets are reopening so we can plan correctly. I understand about the quarantines and I think at the moment it's it's an idea which hopefully will work. But I also think that there could be a different view of being a little bit harder in quarantine for certain for people at risk rather than everybody. Mm. And I think as we've quarantined everybody, it's closed all markets down. We have to have a plan to get these back up and running so businesses can plan. We know how many jobs we can save, we know what type of recession we're going into, so 
so we have more certainty where at the moment today our plan is we're making plans after plans and every different scenario going we just need something so you know direction of travel so we can get focused on that for sure and that exit strategy is going to have to be the next thing that is forthcoming from that government level isn't it hundred percent. Even if we understand when the strategy is within some sort of time limit, so we can plan to it. Um, decisions have to be made. They have to be made quickly. I understand why they're doing what they're doing, but I also think that this interruption scheme is going to be easier to get hold of the capital for people. Because if you're a business and SME without data, and you don't know how much you need, it's a catch twenty two position. Because you know we don't want to give money to businesses then just to fail later then if they're going to fail today, we need them not to fail whatsoever. I would certainly um, agree with that. And um, looking back at what we've discussed already today, we've looked very much into uh, the decisions that you would make and uh, the action that you've taken personally to help Sensio through this um, period and essentially taken a little bit of an in-depth look as to your own sort of style of leadership there, Michael. Um, But what would you say um, are the influences behind your way of leading the business? Um, Are there any individuals that stick out or any experiences that you've had that maybe had an influence on that? Um, I think there's there's two main ones to recall. First of all is having school teachers to say you're never going to make anything of your life. I think that created a massive amount of um, focus to achieve. You know, um, the, the state of mind became, doesn't matter what happens, we're just going to achieve and get where we're going to be. Nothing's going to stop it. So I think that influence early in the school time, in, in, in a younger time has allowed us to then really focus on proving those people wrong although it doesn't matter and I'll never see them again I think secondly my dad really really helped me understand how to talk to people and at the end of the day business is just people so as long as you can get along with people and you can create some type of value and you can articulate that and create inspiration and then create drive around you from people that want to go on this journey with you um, I think that's a real important attribute to success. I do really like the examples that you've uh, picked out there, uh, Michael, because it brings into um, light um, another question, um, actually. Um a lot of good examples of leadership inspiring individuals are people, especially in the in a business context, who aren't necessarily in the public eye. Because when people think of leaders, people think of celebrities, sports personalities, politicians, those sorts of people. But a lot of the most inspiring figures, especially um, from a business and career perspective, can be people who are under the radar and very much out of the limelight in that sense. Um, if we think about that for a moment, do you think that good leadership is as celebrated as much as it should be in this country? Uh, it's a difficult question because it'll change for each individual's experience. Um, I think it's very difficult to be successful. It's very, very, very hard. And I think what people don't see is that you've effectively got to commit a good 10 to 20 years of your entire life only thinking about that every single working minute and doing nothing but working towards a goal. So I think what it takes to be successful is not really seen. People just see people being successful. They don't see the 10 to 20 years that got them to be successful. So I think it's understated how difficult it is to get there. But I also think that it should be used to inspire people 
so that there's a belief system that anything is possible. Um, I suffer really badly from dyslexia. I've got no GCSEs. I never went to pick them up. I've done no formal education, and I've never worked for anyone. And I started in a garage. So if I can do that, what can the people do with degrees and the people that were successful at school can do? Very, very thought-provoking uh, point, Michael. And um, perhaps as a country um, as well, we should be um, developing a culture where people are encouraged and people aren't necessarily being drummed into the mindset that they're being told that they're going to fail and they then have to prove people wrong. Do you think encouraging the next generation of leaders and inspiring them would be the way forward? For sure, encouragement's important, but I think we've got to completely change the way we think. We are school we are told um, how our lives will be what steps you have to take you go to university you get a job it's all very secure I think we've got to allow people to completely think about what can be achieved and as soon as there's no limitations in the thinking everything becomes possible but when there's limitations in the thinking it sort of boxes us in we don't have a lot of creativity so we've got to stop looking that the only way to success is doing great at school, going to a great university, getting great results, working in a business, working. But that's not the only way. There's more to it. So I think that we're going to have to encourage and empower people to think completely differently, but also that everything in the world is possible if you want it. And it really only comes down to how much effort are you going to put in and are you going to stop? You can't, you can't give up. You've just got to keep going. And overnight companies... Successful overnight businesses normally take 20 years in the making. Mm. And there does seem to be a norm there in terms of the career path that one sets on from school age onwards. And I think, as you say, deviating from that norm should be one of the next steps that uh, we should look to take, certainly um, as a country. Um, Michael, um, before we do wrap things up, um, what I would like to get an idea of is what you think the next 12 months hold for yourself and for Senzio Lighting and what you really hope to achieve in that time, particularly coming out of the other side of the COVID-19 outbreak as well. I believe that we will go into some type of U-shaped recession. I think um, there'll be quite a dramatic impact. It's not going to be a year of making money. It's going to be a year of creating structure, more efficiency, protecting our people, protecting our customers. And I think this year is going to bring us back to what the basics have to be to succeed. After that, I think after this year, and we've restructured and we've got our liquidity under control and we've reviewed all our cost structures and how we add value, I think next year is going to be about how do you gear up your business how do you scale up and how do you take more market share and win Absolutely. Um, Michael, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the uh, the programme and also incredibly um, insightful. And what I think would be fantastic is to perhaps have you back on in a few months' time to look at this retrospectively and discuss just how things have played out as we move out of the, uh, the outbreak. Thanks ever so much for taking the time to speak to me and share your views with our listeners. Yeah, thank you so much. Thanks, Scott. I appreciate it. And any way we can help, we, we, we'd love to support anyone or going through this difficult time we're all in it together and we've got to make the best of the situation 
It's um, for certain that we do. And um, another thing that hopefully we can take forward from this is this sense of national unity and that we are in this together. And we can really learn from that and take that forward as we start seeing the light at the end of the tunnel. And hopefully that will be prevalent as we start seeing that upward trajectory in the economy, hopefully sooner rather than later, be it the V-shape, be it the U-shape. I hope you enjoyed my interview with Michael, particularly with regard to how the whole team at Senzio Lighting is continuing to raise standards even throughout this challenging time. Next up on the programme, I'll be handing over to Jonathan White for his exclusive interview with England's 1966 Football World Cup hero, Sir Jeff Hurst, as well as scoring over 200 league goals for the likes of West Ham United and Stoke City, Sir Jeff remains the only man to this day to score a hat-trick in the final of a World Cup after his treble in England's 4-2 win over West Germany at the Old Wembley 54 years ago. I hope you enjoy listening just as much as Jonathan enjoyed speaking to Sir Jeff. Here it is now. Uh, we're now joined, uh, though, by former England footballer and still the only man to score a hat-trick in a World Cup final, Sir Jeff Hurst. Uh, thank you very much for coming on today. Uh, You're welcome. You're welcome. Good afternoon. Uh, and perhaps I should uh, start and get it over and done with. I know you must be bored with it and uh, you've probably been asked a thousand times. But when you got out for a duck playing for Essex, uh, Jeff, what was going through your head at the time? <laughs> well, of course, that's not one of the most asked questions I get. Oh, there, there are one or two people who are very familiar um, who, who do Google me realise that I did uh, score nothing for Essex. Uh, for my only game for Essex, first team, when we played against Lancashire in Liverpool, a place called uh, uh, Egbert in, in, uh, in Liverpool, many, many years ago, 1962, I think that was. So I didn't, and, um, yes, I, I didn't really feel it at the time. It was lucky to be playing, I guess, with one or two injuries. Um, but the problem that I had was, was really messing about between the two sports. That was very detrimental to me uh, over that period of time, mm. being stuck between the two sports. And I think uh, for those that uh, don't know, there's a there's a, another world that might exist where um, Sir Jeff Hurst was a, a first class cricketer and not perhaps a, a footballer. But um, whether it's business or cricket or or football, obviously the importance of leadership it can't be understated, no matter what form that comes in. When you were at West Ham, uh, Jeff, and when um, Ron Greenwood first uh, uh, came along, he made obviously some pretty radical changes. Was this a man that genuinely inspired confidence uh, the first time you'd meet him? Absolutely. I mean, he, he was simply a, a fantastic uh, coach or teacher, if you like, at the football. And uh, the, the quite always mentioned when we talk about Ron Greenwood, Harry Redknapp, who was played under him and has been very successful as a player and, and the manager over many, many, many years. He and He's come across many coaches, of course, and managers during his time over years, I guess he would still say that Ron Greenwood is the best coach he had worked with, he'd worked with. So you're very fortunate. I think you think you're lucky when you come across if you have a great teacher at school and a great coach as we had in Ron Greenwood and, of course, a great manager in Sir Alf Ramsey. So to come across people like that of that calibre can have a huge influence on your your career, of course, and, and then your life. And that's, that's quite purely the case. Absolutely. And in those early days um, at West Ham, uh, with, with a manager like, like uh, Ron uh, there, it's also important to have 
uh, confidence with your other players. And of course, they become your friends. Who did you look at to at the time uh, when to inspire confidence in yourself? Was it more? Was it Peter's? I think probably, well, I was very fortunate to play with the calibre of the players I did. Again, again, extremely fortunate to play with you know, the captain um, of England and West Ham and Martin Peters, who was a fantastic player. And some, as far as Martin's concerned, I think sometimes he didn't quite get the uh, recognition he deserved. What a wonderful player he was. In terms of inspiring confidence, I always probably say that the biggest influence uh, for me, I guess, would be the captain, Bob Noor. Although he was only uh, about eight months older than me, he graduated through the system probably three or four years earlier. He played for England in 62, four years before the final when I played. And so he, he was more, looked upon him more as a senior player, if you like, not as a, a guy with the same age group as me. And I looked at how he, how he uh, trained, how he acted, how he behaved, and how he played. And so he, he would say, I would also say he was a big influence. On me. One thing I would say about leadership, uh, what I do, I do understand clearly in all walks of life, leadership is at the top, is absolutely vital for a, a, for a business, a football team, in any walk of life to be successful. And it's quite evident. I was in the motor trade for a long time as well, selling car warranties to car dealerships. And you could almost tell when you walked into the business, uh, in a, many of the car dealerships, you could almost tell from the moment you walked in by initial reaction people came and welcomed you that the business was well run or conversely not well run at all. And so I understand the, the, the value and quality of leadership and that's why I'm very fortunate to be involved in my career in those early days with two, two great leaders in, in Ron Greenwood and, and Alf Ramsey. Absolutely. And um, since you've already uh, brought him up, uh, Jeff, I think it'd be remiss not to go a little bit further with that, but obviously... Uh, after uh, at West Ham, your uh, plan came to the attention of uh, South Ramsey. Now, there's a man, I'm sure, when you walked into a room, you knew who was um, in charge. When it came to managing that England team, what was his style like, Jeff? Well, one thing, the first thing I say about Alf Ramsey, he's probably over my life the most powerful influence who had on me um, as a person. Um, naturally it happens to an extent because he's got your whole career in his hand whether he picks you for England or he doesn't pick you it can have a great impact on your, <laughs> your career and of course your life but yep. in that era I was involved for six or seven years he it was quite clear who was the boss he was quite very very strict probably at a time maybe overly strict but at a time you probably wouldn't get necessarily get away with it in, in today's football because it's changed dramatically in how you deal with with players then and players now but he was the most powerful man I came across and very few people and he, he was quite ruthless in getting people out who he didn't want to be who didn't want to be part of a group part of a team it is important that if you've got a group of people and that's in any walk of life they're all singing off the same hymn suit and you don't have anybody that's griping or moaning about the system. And if you've got people like that in the organisation, one thing I have learned and I've taken on in my life, my family, you've got somebody in a group that doesn't want to be part of it, you, you get them out. And Alf, I think, was was quite ruthless with that in his, in his staff. And I think that's one, thing I, one of the most serious things I think I've learned over a long period of time. And is there, do you think, 
a, a specific moment? I'm sure there's probably dozens, but is there a specific moment, Jeff, you could uh, perhaps pick right now that did show those uh, qualities in uh, Sir Alf so uh, sharply? Yes, I think for, for me, certainly, um, I think there are instances of players who you thought would, would be in the team or certainly in the squad and surprising there were not. There was no necessary reason for it. But looking mm. back, I do think perhaps they were people that Alf didn't think wanted to be part of the group. Um, so that that's that for me. In terms of my personal view, I think that it looked prior to the um, World Cup that I was going to be playing um, in it, only a few games before. I was I was playing, and I played with Jimmy Greaves in the game against Yugoslavia only a couple of months before the final. And it looked at that stage as if I was going to be, be playing in, in the team. But uh, in a couple of friendly games, more friendly games, before the final in Poland and uh, uh, Norway, I think, and Denmark. Mm. I didn't. I played two of the four games, and I probably didn't quite replicate my my form that I'd been showing at West Ham and in the early couple of games for England. And he he left me out in the first game of, of the World Cup against uh, Uruguay. He started off with Jimmy Green and Roger Allen. So mm. I, I had an impact of thinking I at that stage I, like I was going to play, and didn't start because of just. A lack of form. I didn't play quite well enough to justify my position, and somewhat fortuitously, I only got back into it because of a, a nasty gash to shin um, on Jimmy Glee's leg. And I think what you've said there, uh, Jeff, actually does sum that up really well. And more than that, whilst it's important to have that someone in charge with those qualities, it's almost useless if there isn't a strong and unified team behind them. And there really must have been moments, maybe there weren't, but uh, let us know in that 66 competition, the prolonged pressure on all of you, you know, the weight of a nation, did it get to you? Oh, not for me personally, no. I I think, and I don't, uh, not for me, not for a second. I think Mm. I was just happy to be, be involved in the squad initially. Uh, Not at all. I didn't, you're not aware of the magnitude of the occasion, really, looking back out. Mm. So I never really felt people talk about pressure a lot, and it's there, and people, players talk about it, people talk about it in life. I didn't really feel necessary to feel any great pressure, pressure during the time I was there. And what is also important to say about Alf Ramsey, the people he, he left behind that were left in the squad after he'd moved one or two players out, the squad were uh, a, a bunch of very hard-nosed, professional, uh, top-quality people. And that was, again, the leadership that Al showed. He, he got people in together that were very, very strong personally. Um, uh, and I think that was part of the success we had. We were very, I always describe our, our group as hard-nosed professionals. Um, we had some great players, but overall, they were great hard-nosed professional players. Um, and great quality people who we've kept in contact with, you know, over the years. And Jeff, I've got to ask, and I'm I'm not making this up. I've genuinely heard that people do ask you whether or not you realised there were people on the pitch at that moment. I imagine you were busy on something else. Well, I, I did some theatre shows last year. They've gone fairly well, and we're going to do a series of uh, theatre shows. In fact, starting this week over the next uh, two, three months. 
And uh, at the end of the theatre shows, we have about 20 minutes where we uh, uh, allow the people in the audience to ask questions. And the, the, there's, I won't mention both. They're too long to talk about both questions. Um, one, the other one's a really stupid one. It's too long for me to tell you. It's absolutely ridiculous. <laughs> but the, the, the other ridiculous question I get asked, did I realise there were people on the pitch? And, of course, I jokingly say, yes, I was just about to, to shoot to score the goal. And I looked round, put my foot on the ball, and looked round for a little while and said, oh, dear, there are six or seven people running on the pitch. So that's, uh, I've had been asked that once at one of the theatre shows. <laughs> so I joke, make a joke about that and saying, yes, I put my foot on the ball and waited, but just had a, look, had a glance round, you know. Maybe it does prove there are things that, such as stupid questions, really. Um, oh, yeah, there are. There certainly are. I've got another one which I won't bore you into. It won't be too long to tell you. Uh, I was in a Jersey or Channel Line, Jersey or Jersey, two or three mm. years ago, in most stu- stupid, irrelevant questions that absolutely nothing to do with football whatsoever, which uh, was absolutely. But I can use that now because it, it is quite funny. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe another time then. But we. Um, uh, well, you want me, I, I can tell you if you want. You want. You got time. I can tell, I tell, tell you if you want. Jeff, go on. Go. On. I think I'd be, it would be silly if I said no at this point. Okay. So I was uh, doing a, a, at a dinner in the you know, Channel Lines, three or four hundred people, black tie dinner, uh, guest of honor. Mm-hmm. And this occasion, I was speaking for about twenty minutes, then allowing uh, questions from the audience at the end of the evening, and there was usual football questions. And then all of a sudden, I had a somebody at the back who who asked a question. I didn't quite hear what he said. He didn't have the microphone with him. So I said, I didn't hear what he said. Can you please give mm. this chap the microphone so I can hear clearly what he said? So the chap had the mic and he said, when a turtle loses its shell, is it naked or is it homeless? Right. <laughs> what, what a question. What a question. Uh, well, I think that would be in, definitely in the stupid category, wouldn't it? So we had a laugh about that. Is- uh, well, uh, and we, you've got to have a patient of a saint, I think, sometimes to put up with <laughs> well, things no, like that. But then again, I found it amusing. I just found it amusing. In fact, some of the audience found it highly amusing as well. So it did, uh, um, it did make it again, laugh that day. If you can put up with my questions, you can probably put up with uh, anything. <laughs> um, but there, there would have become a point, though, um, Jeff, I think. Um, you, you were a young man when... See, this happened when you must have realised that people, teammates, began looking at you for leadership. Um, is that something that occurred to you, or did you just realise that by, by quick, one way or the other, people actually begin to look up for you for inspiration? Well, possibly. That's never really struck me until you've actually mentioned it now, quite frankly. That's a new, a new question. Mm. Does anybody look up to me? I'm sure perhaps uh, there are there are people who pay you compliments of the fans of, of West Ham and uh, of Stoke and of course in, uh, England fans who um, I, I think probably uh, it would be very immodest of me to to suggest I, I felt that somebody was looking to me for inspiration. Um, you, but, you don't but, have to, but I will. No, um, well, it, it's, it's okay for a third party to do it, perhaps. Um, perhaps that may have been the case over the years. Uh, people look at you and um, uh, maybe uh, it has a uh, helpful effect. Uh, but I do think you, you, how you behave and set examples on and off the pitch is people must realise that that's 
has, has an influence, how you react and behave mm. to, to situations on and off the field, surely probably has an impact to younger players coming in into the team laterally. Um, yeah. And and with that, looking at um, uh, football today, uh, is there anybody that you think particularly on the field or the sidelines that strikes you as someone with um, those qualities that you could identify in a in a natural leader? Um, well, a player, current players, you mean? Oh, players, managers, anybody that uh, you look to today, really? Well, I think some of the outstanding. I think the, the best example about a, a leader and at the moment is is, is uh, Klopp at Liverpool. Mm. He has been absolutely fantastic to uh, acquire the players and get them to their attitude is absolutely fantastic. They're great players, but there's more than just being good players in football. It's a good player with a fantastic attitude and their willingness to work for each other and the team is absolutely outstanding. Hence these unbelievable results. There are, you know, and the great players not always succeed as, as individuals or probably even uh, certainly as a team if you haven't got the right attitude alongside it. And they're probably, and that, that comes through the leadership. That's not just luck. Absolutely. That's, that's absolute leadership. He'd be the best example, of course, in, in football terms today. Uh, easily, easily. And of course, but going back not that long ago, Alex Ferguson, who's just absolutely, mm. you've got to take him as the first example, but Klopp's only done this over a period of time, a short period of time. But if you look at the 25, 26, 27 years that Alex Ferguson did with Manchester United, and subsequently since he's gone, how they they are not doing so well, he's the best example of management I've seen, we've seen, we've probably ever seen, and I don't think anybody will see the light of that kind of leadership again. It's ast- absolutely astonishing, astonishing. And do you think, could you imagine uh, Sir Alf or even Ron Greenwood managing teams today? Yes, I think so. I think, yes, no, mm. no question at all. I think they, uh, Ron Greenwood, yeah, well, the, the answer is straightforward. The answer is yes. Um, they, answer. <laughs> the straightforward answer is yes. I can elaborate as much as you want, but the straight answer is absolutely categorically yes. Uh, and with, um, and I know uh, if we could talk about this probably for the next hour or so, but um, I'm conscious of the um, time. Um, looking um, back uh, through your um, playing career, perhaps especially um, your time uh, for England, who was it uh, that struck you more than anyone else on the pitch uh, that displayed qualities of not just leadership but uh, companionship and and level headedness that you think that have stuck with you all these years later? Well, I think we were very fortunate, and I wouldn't take any one player out. I think looking at so that, many. yeah, so many, and that's why we were successful because we had so many. Um, showing all those qualities that you just mentioned uh, throughout the team, I think that that was outstanding, and uh, uh, and it's an opportunity to talk about uh, all of them in, in that breath. And there was nobody. And going back on an earlier earlier question for me, that um, all hard nosed professionals, good good teammates, mm. good socially, 
and that's why we kept in touch with each other on our golf days every year uh, up until about five years ago. Of course, with, with the uh, sadly dwindling yes. numbers, we we still got on. Our wives got on with all together. All those years later, it didn't just finish after '66. That reunion, that camaraderie, that team spirit, mm. the, um, getting on with each other, lasted for, for a long, long, long time. And I wouldn't and when it, when you put those those questions and how you categorise those, I would pick every one of the eleven players um, who you put in that category that were like that. There was nobody else; they were all outstanding. And I think that was a big part. I can't stress how big Absolutely. a part that was. And I've said that many, many times for the success of the team. We have some great and players. You- we have some great players, of course. But without the attitude <laughs> alongside that, going back to an earlier question. You, we wouldn't have been as uh, ultimately, ultimately as successful. Exactly. Without that, you, the, the the whole will never be greater than the sum of its parts. But with it, yes, the word the word is team. the word is t- the word is team. Absolutely. And I always use the word team when I talk. Sometimes uh, together, everyone achieves more, and that that's the same in any walk of life. That, that's fundamental. And uh, lastly. Uh, Jeff, looking, if, if you were to uh, give advice, and whether this is in sport or business or indeed any other walk of life, what would you identify, if you can, as the key tenant uh, that you can't go without in terms of leading a team, no matter what that team is? Single-mindedness, uh, single-mindedness dedication, dedication to the job, um, thinking about that, that, that role, that job in leadership, all the time. It's a huge part of your life. But it, you, I don't think you can switch off when you're in, in business at the top level or sport at the top level. You may, you know, have a, have a couple of weeks holiday, but I'm even sure if, if these top managers and lead, leaders in all walks of life are away on holiday on a beach somewhere warm, I'm sure there's not, uh, there's, they will not switch off for, for two weeks um, and completely uh, not think about their role as the boss of an organisation, and I think that's you're completely focused. You're always thinking about uh, things, thinking about improvements, and it's just dedication and uh, uh, tuning your life to being successful. Excellent. Well, Jeff, on that point, thank you very much for joining us today. You're welcome. Very good to nice to have a talk about this and just go over it, go over the past, and just uh, refresh my mem- my own memory about the quality of the players I grew up with. Excellent. Uh, another time, uh, it would be great to talk again. Thank, thank you, Jonathan. Thank you. As always, it has been a pleasure listening to and learning from our guests. I and Jonathan hope you all enjoyed listening. Until next time, since sadly all the pubs are closed, Jonathan and I will be sitting in the front room with a bottle of Merlot and raising a glass to raising standards. Hopefully we can reoccupy our usual corner in the Westminster Arms very soon. Remember... Look after yourselves, stay at home, and save lives. Thank you for listening to our podcast. You can find every episode on iTunes, YouTube, and Spotify. The views expressed by each guest in the podcast are their own. They do not represent the opinions of the Parliamentary Review, Westminster Publications, Lord Pickles, Lord Blunkett, David Curry, or any other guest on the podcast. If you'd like to know more about the Parliamentary Review, please visit www.theparliamentaryreview.co.uk.